Good evening, everyone, and welcome to New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and it's always a thrill to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Our major exhibition on view right now is the Battle of Brooklyn. If you haven't seen it, we encourage you to come. Other exhibitions are on view, and you can find them in our brochure. If you don't already have one, please pick one up. Consider being a member if you're not already. I always like to ask how many members do we have with us in the audience? Okay, there's maybe two or three who are not members here. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'll just tell you that the two or three, please become members. We, there is so much to take part in here. We have a wonderful program series, free admission to the museum. And for those of you who are already, already members, Think about a gift membership with the holidays coming up. It is a great gift. And um, your support is, it's an invaluable, it plays an invaluable role in helping all our programs. So thank you all for being here. Tonight's program, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, is a part of the Bernard Nyren Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give Mr. Schwartz a hand. <clears throat> I'd also like to recognize and thank New York Historical trustees with us tonight. Roger Hertog, former chairman of the board, currently chairman of our executive committee, for all his ongoing efforts and support in opening the doors of New York Historical into the 21st century. Let's give Roger Hertog a hand. I and Cy Sternberg, another wonderful trustee. Thank you, Cy, for being with us tonight. And all, we have a great group of Chairman's Council members with us tonight. We thank you as well for all your support. The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session. We ask you to step to the mics in the two aisles. And following the program, the authors will be signing their books right on the Central Park West side. And our museum store is now temporarily in a kiosk right near the table where they'll be signing as well. We're thrilled to welcome Jeffrey Rosen to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and a professor of law at George Washington University Law School. In addition, he serves as a contributing editor of The Atlantic and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of several books, including his latest, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. Am I saying Louis properly? Louis, okay. Exactly right. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. We are so pleased to welcome back our moderator for this evening, Akil Ridamar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. Before joining Yale Law School, Professor Amar clerked on the First Circuit for Judge Stephen Breyer. He is also a recipient of the Devane Medal, Yale's highest award for teaching excellence, and is the author of several books, including his latest, The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. <laughs> Professor Amar is also an honorary scholar trustee at the New York Historical Society. 
So before we begin, I'd just like to ask everyone if you have a cell phone or a beeper that you turn it off for the duration of the program. And uh, just note the photography is not permitted as well. Thank you all for joining us. Welcome uh, Jeffrey Rosen and Akil Rita Mar. Thank you. It's always a delight to be at this place. I, I, this is a very special audience, always. Thanks for, for coming. Um, as you heard, uh, uh, I'm uh, a law professor. I used to think I teach law. Um, I don't anymore. I think I teach students. Uh, and there's no student, and, I, and, and the, every year I'm fortunate enough to have a few students that, in the right way, in a platonic way, I kind of fall in love with. Um, and, and then I watch them go out into the world and do all the amazing things that, of course, that I knew they would. Sometimes they don't know um, just um, um, what extraordinary um, futures uh, await them. There's no one, no student that I've ever had um, uh, that gave me more delight as a student and, um, and whose career, um, whose magnificent constitutional career, I've um, uh, uh, watched with such um, a um, fraternal, a paternal, whatever, pride, familial pride um, uh, than, uh, than Jeff Rosen. So it's, it's great to be reunited, um, uh, Jeff, with you. Um, congratulations on, on your latest triumph. Um, and let's begin, um, with your permission, um, uh, by reminding our audience just a little bit about Louis Brandeis in general. And then we can start to get into some of the specifics of your book. But, but why don't we start with a general picture of Brandeis? Wonderful. Well, first of all, it is such an honor to be here at the beautiful New York Historical Society. Thank you all so much for turning out on debate night. Um, <laughs> I'm Lester Holt, and I'll be uh, <laughs> moderating this conversation. We promised to end on the dot of 7.30 so we can all go watch the festivities. And ladies, and <laughs> I can actually start lurking behind the uh, <laughs> scene. But, but the National Constitution Center is nonpartisan, so we will, I will also represent both sides. Um, I can't tell you what, just a joy it is to appear with my great teacher, Akilah Amar. Um, one of the luckiest breaks in my life was when I showed up in law school and was assigned to Akil's small group. And he had just started teaching. Uh, you were how old? 26, 20, when I started. But I think I was about 28 or 29 when you were, when you were, you were, were over the hill. You were about 29 when, when I started, uh, just a few years older than, than I. And this great teacher kindled my passion for the Constitution. And I had a sense, even then, that I had a responsibility to take up this charge of helping people learn about this beautiful document and its history and the best arguments on all sides of the cases at the Center of American Life. And which, which one do you? Well, I have so many. No, you have the Cato Constitution. You need the National Constitution I do have, Center. I do have the National Constitution. I do have it here. I really do. Where? No, no, that's the U.S. Okay, I'll trade you one Cato, but you, you take but the MCC. But this is the old National Constitution Center Oh, you're right. That's it. Well, I want the old one. Here, okay. you take the new okay. one. Okay, okay. And I got a It's a deal. This is like Harpo Marx. But um, now Akil is America's teacher of the Constitution, and his, I can't resist uh, plugging it because I've had the pleasure of reading it and reviewing it. His beautiful new book, The Constitution Today, uh, Timeless Lessons from the Issues of Our Era, collects his columns as a journalist of the Constitution for the past 
two decades, and just better than anyone else, he can translate the complicated arguments of text and history at the center of each clause of the Constitution in ways that will kindle your passion for the document as much as mine. So I'm so glad that we're here together. But, but Brandeis. Brandeis, okay. Born in- Thank you, but Brandeis. True. Uh, 1857 uh, in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. His parents have fled the failed revolutions of 1848. They are pilgrims of 1848 who left Prague in search of America and liberty. And they come to America fired with this passion for liberty, and Adolf Brandeis, uh, Brandeis's father sets up a series of small businessmen, uh, businesses, in particular the grain business. So Brandeis is agrarian from the beginning, and he becomes a great Jeffersonian who comes to believe that only in small-scale businesses, and especially agricultural businesses, can people achieve the mastery and develop their faculties of reason in a way that's necessary for personal and professional self-government. He remembered at the age of five and a half hearing the shots at the Second Battle of Bull Run during the Civil War. His mother was an abolitionist and brought coffee to the Union soldiers. And, and I, where are they, by the way, in America? In, in Louisville, Kentucky okay. then. So I, in college, had the honor of studying with one of Brandeis's last law clerks, uh, David Reisman. And the idea that I studied with someone who clerked for someone who heard the last shots of the Civil War just encapsulates all of American history in this incredible sweep. So Brandeis is educated in Dresden, Germany, where his father goes because he's wiped out in one of the panics of the 1890s, a panic that increases Brandeis's hatred for the consolidated power of big banks and the reckless risks they take with what he would unforgettably call other people's money, he then goes to Harvard Law School and gets the highest grades in the history of the school, still unsurpassed apparently to today. And then he becomes in Boston the people's lawyer. And he represents both sides, businesses and labor, helping them to come to moderate solutions. He's a kind of Jeffersonian McKinsey consultant. <laughs> and then he becomes Woodrow Wilson's chief economic advisor. And in the election of 1912, he writes this incredible uh, book, uh, Other People's Money, that accuses J.P. Morgan of taking reckless risks and investing in complicated financial instruments <coughs> whose value he can't possibly understand. Uh, sound familiar? Uh, Brandeis predicted the crash of 29. He would have predicted the crash of 2008. I was distressed on the campaign trail a few months ago, uh, last spring, it seems so long ago, to hear Bernie Sanders attribute his proposal to break up the banks to Theodore Roosevelt. In fact, it was Brandeis and Wilson who wanted to break up the banks so that they were too large to pose threats of monopoly power. Roosevelt wanted to create big regulatory bodies to oversee the big corporations, and Brandeis hated bigness in government as well as bigness. And William Howard Taft, the final candidate in 1912, wanted to uh, have vigorous antitrust prosecution. So interesting that all three candidates in 1912 are opposed to the dangers of corporate bigness, but Brandeis is the intellectual architect of the new freedom. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger said that the first New Deal breathed the spirit of Roosevelt and Herbert Crowley and the new nationalism, the second New Deal of Louis Brandeis and Woodrow Wilson and the new freedom in response to the uh, um, excesses of the first New Deal, which created all these big regulatory bodies, which Brandeis voted as a Supreme Court justice to strike down, the second New Dealers were more convinced about the necessity of breaking up consolidated power. 
they, that led to the passage of the Glass-Steagall Act, which um, the House of Morgan blamed on Brandeis because it was inspired by him, which kept financial stability until it was uh, dismantled in the 1990s. So, uh, and if all this wasn't enough, we're just taking him up to his appointment to the Supreme Court in 1916. Uh, so right before his appointment, he becomes the head of the American Zionist movement uh, for reasons we can talk about later. But when he's appointed June 1st, 1916, a date that, uh, the, the book was published on uh, June 1st, and the only reason I actually was able to write it is that the publisher said if I didn't turn it in in six months, I'd miss the 100th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So fear is a great motivating factor, and I turned the darn thing out on time. He's nominated on January 28th, confirmed on June 1st. He waits 125 days between nomination and confirmation. That record was surpassed on July 19th by Merrick Garland, but it was unsurpassed before then. And basically, the opposition to him is... Merrick Garland, by the way, who, cl uh, who clerked for Friendly, who clerked for Brandeis. Brandeis. Absolutely. It's a fine lineage, as did John Roberts. There's a whole series of uh, justices on both sides who clerked for Henry Friendly, who was one of the great Brandeis clerks. And it was basically Brandeis's, there was some anti-Semitism in the confirmation hearings. His critics accused him of uh, Old Testament cruelty. And uh, William Howard Taft, uh, you know, called him an emotionalist and a, Rootless cosmopolite, basically. It was, you know, in terms that have an anti-Semitic ring today. But it was mostly his opposition to corporate bigness, the fact that he was perceived as a radical, that led J.P. Morgan and Abbott Lawrence Lowell of Harvard and State Street and Wall Street to unite against him. Because it was a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, it shouldn't have been close. And eventually, though, the logjam was broken and Brandeis was handily confirmed on June 1st, 1916. Okay, but just maybe give us then the rest of his biography and then we're gonna get into your specific perspectival take in the book on Brandeis's biggest idea. So take us to the end. So I know you don't, you know, it's hard. To, when you, biographers often fall in love with their subjects and I'm, I'm gonna ask you to take you to all the way to the, the death and, and, and then we'll get into the book. Well, it's such an inspiring story that I'm delighted to okay. uh, <laughs> tell the uh, second half of it. So as if it's, as if, uh, it's not enough to have been, been the people's lawyer and the major critic of bigness uh, before his appointment to the Supreme Court, he then goes on to the court and uh, becomes the leader of the American Zionist movement. And this is just a remarkable story. It was actually in the summer of 1910 uh, that he had a kind of intellectual conversion. He's raised as a non-observant Jew in Louisville. His mother is a member of a, a, uh, the Frankist sect, which is a kind of precursor of Reform Judaism, and she believes that ethics and morals are more important than religious observance. So although the Brandeis never renounced his religion, uh, they had a Christmas tree, they, they went horseback riding on Yom Kippur, so they were not identified Jews. I know, uh, scandalous. Uh, we all, we've all done it. So um, <laughs> then in 1910, he's visited by Jacob de Haas, who is the American secretary of Theodore Herzl, the fa father of modern Zionism. And de Haas is interviewing him about gas reform in Boston, a subject near to Brandeis's heart, when de Haas mentions in passing, Louis Dembitz was a noble Jew. Brandeis's interest is peaked. Louis Dembitz is his revered uncle, his mother's brother, the only Orthodox Jew in the family, one of three Jewish delegates to the Republican Convention of 1860 who voted for Abraham Lincoln. And Brandeis so admires his uncle that he changes his middle name from David to Dembitz. And when he learns that Dembitz is a Zionist, he does what he always did, which is he begins to read. Brandeis is a, 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 a messianic 
a proselytizer for the importance of facts. And in 1908, right before the De Haas meeting, he had written the Brandeis Brief, which was a collection of facts and empirical evidence designed to convince the Supreme Court to uphold maximum hour laws for women. And this was so influential that it was cited by the court. I got the honor of interviewing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Kagan, and Justice Breyer for this book. And Justice Ginsburg told me that the Brandeis brief inspired her when she argued her cases involving gender discrimination, just as it inspired Thurgood Marshall when he argued Brown versus Board of Education. But Brandeis reads about Zionism, and he thinks, and he reflects, and he decides. Previously, he had believed that uh, you couldn't have hyphenated Americanism. He embraced Theodore Roosevelt's melting pot notion. But then after thinking and reading and talking to Horace Callan, his great student at Harvard and the uh, theorist of cultural pluralism, he comes to believe by being better Jews, we can be better Americans because only by embracing all of our hyphenated identities can different immigrant groups contribute to the symphony that is the American whole. So he's very much a precursor of a beautiful vision of cultural pluralism. He agrees to lead the American Zionist movement. Uh, he continues to lead it while on the Supreme Court. And he is more influential than anyone else for persuading Woodrow Wilson to recognize the Balfour Declaration, which talked about the need for an independent Jewish homeland in Palestine. Can you imagine he's actually drafting the Balfour uh, Declaration uh, himself? Wilson delegates this and uh, prefers him to the State Department. So, uh, and then he raises money, and his motto is men, money, discipline, and he continues to be a great proselytizer for the need for uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine. He doesn't think that American Jews have to go, go to Palestine, but he thinks that they have to support the existence of an independent state that can receive refugees from around the world, in particular as the storms clouds approach from Germany. And he lobbied FDR and Herbert Hoover very hard to allow in Jews. And when the British closed immigration as the Holocaust approach, he said, where will the poor Jews go now? He saw, thank, thankfully he died in 1941 before he could know the worst, but he anticipated it. So I, I don't want to go through his entire Supreme Court career. Let's talk about the different issues that he talked Great. about, but, but it's not a bad so record. That is an invitation then, so that's just the general biography. Of course, he's very famous for being a Supreme Court justice. Your book comes out on the 100th anniversary of his ascension to the court. So I want you to share with the audience um, um, the themes of your book, which is schematic. It, it's not um, a comprehensive biography of a life. It's, it's an engagement with a mind, a legal mind in particular. Um, you've already talked a little bit about Zionism, but you really have um, uh, thus far not told us very much about his ideas on the Supreme Court. Um, so why don't you talk about that and the, the general schema of, which, of your book, which is an intellectual portrait of the man. It is. There are many wonderful biographies of Brandeis, and I recommend them all to you after reading my riveting uh, biography. Which is shorter. <laughs> which is Yours, short. The yes. virtue of this is it's really short, and you can read it uh, fast, and I, it's designed to be a passionate case for why he matters. And then you can go on to read Melvin Urofsky's wonderful 2009 biography, or Philip Strum from 1984, or Alpheus Mason from the 40s. There, he, Brandeis was very fortunate in his biographers. So I thought my job in this book, which is part of a beautiful series that Leon Black has uh, supported called the Yale Jewish Lives series, where they're m matching authors and great Jewish lives. I thought my job was to talk about why he matters and to come up with a distinctive thesis. 
And my thesis is that Brandeis was the most important, of big, most important critic of bigness in business and government since Thomas Jefferson, since the author of the Declaration of Independence. I had thought about Brandeis from law school, where we talked about him a bit, but maybe not centrally, mm -hmm. as a kind of conventional progressive who loved maximum hour and minimum wage laws and liked governmental regulations. But I came to conclude that he wasn't a conventional progressive at all. He mistrusted big government as much as he mistrusted big business. And I begin the book with a scene where he summons to his austere apartment on California Street in Washington, FDR's advisors, uh, Adolph Burl uh, from Columbia Law School and, and Raymond Tugwell, and warns them, you've got to tell the president he has to stop this business of centralization. Unless he keeps centralizing everything, we're going to stop him. And then he begins to prophesy. And people compare Brandeis to Isaiah, to the prophet Isaiah. And FDR actually calls Brandeis, my dear Isaiah, you know, old Isaiah, he writes to him. And he says, and Brandeis says, you've got to tell the president to stop this. Morality is truth. Truth is beauty. Big corporations violate the Constitution. He's basically, can you imagine Barack Obama or Justice Ginsburg summoning Barack Obama right before the Health Care Act and saying, I think the court's going to strike it down, you know, unless you change stuff. That's basically what Brandeis did. FDR did not change his mind, and Brandeis, the prophet, makes good on his threat, and he votes unanimously to strike down the New Deal. But in doing so, he's moved by his readings in Jefferson. Jefferson proposed an amendment to the Constitution that would have prohibited Congress from setting up monopolies or corporations with exclusive privileges. And there's this very vigorous constitutional tradition from Jefferson to Andrew Jackson to Brandeis and Wilson to FDR that believes that monopolies violate basic constitutional liberties. So that's one of Brandeis's great influence. And I call him basically the Jewish Jefferson because he was so passionate in his opposition to bigness. But also he had another great influence and that was fifth century Athens. One of his favorite books was the Greek Polis by Alfred Zimmern, the great British Zionist. And he would give this book to all of his law clerks. And for Brandeis and Zimmern, Fifth century Athens was the apotheosis of small scale. Fifth century BC. BC. Small scale democracy where in face to face deliberations, citizens could develop their faculties of reason and fully participate in self government. And um, uh, Zimmern uh, believed that um, Athens was a model for America as well. And, and Brandeis comes to believe, like Jefferson, that. We have all certain faculties, ranging from passion at the bottom to reason at the top, and we have to develop our faculties of reason. And that's not only a privilege, but a duty of citizenship. So Brandeis um, lionizes the Jewish garment workers that he met during that 1910 strike that he mediated, because in their spare leisure moments, they take the time to read Tolstoy and the founders and to educate themselves. And Brandeis loves the fact that in Zimmern, the word leisure in Greek is the word for unemployment. It's the absence of employment, scholai. And Brandeis says, the Greek, has the, word, the word is unemployment. What a happy land that. So he develops this very strenuous conception of democratic self-education rooted in Jefferson and in the ancient Greeks that says that citizens have to develop their faculties of reason so that they can be achieve personal and professional self-government. But how about a little bit more about his other Supreme Court themes? Because that, those are also featured prominently in your book. Well, his greatest opinion is uh, his opinion in a case called Whitney versus California involving free speech. And we're both law professors, so my homework to you is to go and read Brandeis' concurrence in Whitney. 
not now, on your, on your phones, but, mm -hmm. and you can wait until after the debate, although if you really want to get yourself or, into the or, right or, or if you for, want, you can, you know, you, you, you can, can quote from it. But I, I, okay, I'm going to try to quote from the gist of it. This is a party trick, but I did it once okay. before, okay. so I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the gist of it. No, please don't, okay. I'm going to get nervous. <laughs> um, I'm going to read you the essence of Whitney, and then we'll show you how this just encapsulates Brandeis's Jeffersonian faith. And the context is that this is uh, a law where a woman is convicted in California for violating a, a criminal syndicalism law that basically makes it a crime to advocate the possibility of opposing the draft. Uh, and she denounces lynching and says that racism is bad at a Communist Party meeting. And because she's attending a Communist Party meeting, the idea is that people might be led in the future to do bad things that the communists have possibly advocated in some of their future literature. And Brandeis becomes incensed by the idea that you could criminalize freedom of thought and opinion. Having previously joined a unanimous Supreme Court in upholding the conviction of Eugene B. Debs, the socialist candidate for president in 1920, who was imprisoned for getting up and saying basically, oppose the draft. Under the old Supreme Court test, any speech that had a bad tendency to lead to violations of law in the future could be criminalized. A, a presidential candidate went to jail? And, and one, and one. <laughs> But he, it was before he was elected, so yeah. Okay. And, and a unanimous Supreme Court upholds that conviction. And the reason that a unanimous Supreme Court would not uphold that today is because Brandeis's opinion in Whitney transforms our modern law of free speech and gives us the notion that in America, you can only ban speech when it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. That's how close the connection between the bad idea and the bad conduct has to be. And the violence has to be both imminent and serious. It can't be a small level of wrongdoing. How did Brandeis come to embrace this incredibly protective standard which the Supreme Court embraced in the 60s and which distinguishes America from the rest of the world, which allows the banning of hate speech, for example? It was because of this extraordinary rethinking and channeling of Jefferson in this Whitney case. So here's, here's the paragraph. We'll see how I do, and then we'll try to unpack it. This is Brandeis, and what's so interesting is he starts off by talking not about the people who wrote the Constitution in 1787. He's talking about the revolutionaries of 1776. Jefferson and others. Jefferson, he's talking about Jefferson. And he, and he quotes, the footnote is to Jefferson's second inaugural address, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists, and also to Jefferson's letter to Elijah Boardman, a preacher, talking about the necessity for complete freedom of thought and opinion. Okay, here we go. Those who won our revolution believe that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties, and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. There he's quoting directly from Pericles' funeral oration as translated by Alfred Zimmern. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest threat to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. Well, oh. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't possibly. No, I, I, that's not for me, that's, for, that's right. for Brandeis. And just, let's just parse every thought in that extraordinary paragraph. He's saying 
at the beginning, that first of all, we have a duty to develop our faculties, and he means our faculties of reason, so we can't be guided by passion, but we have to educate ourselves through strenuous reading to develop our faculties of reason. And he's saying that Jefferson and the revolutionaries had such faith in reason that as long as there was time enough to deliberate, they believed that the best response to evil counsels was good ones. The best, speech to bad, best response to bad speech was counter speech. It's only when there's no time to deliberate, only when imminent violence is at hand, that you can suppress speech to avoid the violence. But um, given time enough to deliberate, Brandeis has complete faith that people can separate truth from error, can uh, f uh, participate in public debate, and that some kind of truth will emerge. If you're despairing about the debate tonight, then have, be inspired by Brandeis's optimism in the ultimate triumph of reason, uh, as long as people have time to separate uh, vulgar and bad arg arguments from good ones. Now, there's a very serious question. I hear some chuckling in the audience, or maybe ner nervous, not chuckling, but <laughs> desperate and pessimistic uh, <laughs> gasps of <laughs> democratic horror. And, and I have to stress this, and we'll talk more about this. I am the head of the beautiful National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, which is the only place in America that is, has a mandate from Congress. It's a private nonprofit, but our mandate is to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And our job is to bring together everyone in America, liberals and conservatives and libertarians, to debate not political issues, but constitutional issues. So I'm not going to, you know, we're not taking a side in this debate, and I think it's very important for us to respect citizens on both sides uh, who are moved by uh, crucial constitutional arguments about the future of our republic. But there is a serious question about whether technology, like the Twitter sphere, like Facebook, like uh, Google, has so speeded up the pace of discussion that there's not that time for deliberation that Brandeis thought was necessary for reason to prevail. The last chapter of the book asks, WWBD, what would Brandeis do? And I try to channel him on issues ranging from Google to hate speech to Amazon and Walmart. And although he was ultimately an optimist in, the, in human perfectibility, in the ability of people to rise to their better natures, uh, and he would have been inspired, maybe nervously optimistic, by the democratizing possibilities of speech on the internet where there's so much opportunity for people to express themselves. And he did have faith that people could separate good from bad counsels and would not have favored European approaches to hate speech. Nevertheless, this question of deliberation and time is one that would have deserved his close attention. Well, let me just try to make a little trouble for you, because you have to be nonpartisan, and the National Constitution Center does, but I don't. So Brandeis <laughs> took a side, took a side for free speech. And I'll say something, it might have a partisan valence, but I want the audience to, to think about whether both candidates have an equal commitment to freedom of speech. Um, Okay, because Brandeis didn't, didn't say, you know, I can't, take a, I can't take a position on that. He took one emphatically for speed, free speech. Now, Google, yeah, it speeds things up, but there's no requirement that you just tweet out the first thing that pops into your head. Not that, and, 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 and question, do both candidates do that? Or does, there's time. We've had, we have a year and a half of, of, of a presidential campaign. That's a lot of time. So I'm not going to blame Google or new technology for the problems today. I'm gonna to blame citizens because they're not listening to Brandeis who said there's not just freedom of speech because one of the things you said is powerful. There's a duty 
to listen. There's a duty to discipline ourselves to um, duties of citizenship as well as rights. And, and Brandeis is taking positions on all that. And I'm, I'm with him on these things. I'm going to say something else very quickly, but you want to jump in. Well, I'm with him too. And I'm, well, the Supreme Court is with him as well. And the Supreme Court has unequivocally and beautifully and on a nonpartisan basis unanimously embraced Brandeis's vision that speech can only be banned when it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. And I think it's terribly important in these anxious times when free speech is under threat from populist forces on all sides, on the left and the right, on campuses and also online, where today platforms like Google and Facebook have more power over who can speak and who can be heard than any king or president or Supreme Court justice, and where they are adopting speech policies that are less protective of speech than the one that the Supreme Court requires. I think it's very important that all of us both attend to Brandeis's reasons for protecting speech and embrace them because I think they're constitutionally correct. We're going to get the audience in in about uh, 15 minutes, but before we do, um, I want to tee up at least two more things. Um, one, to talk a bit about one other big Brandeisian idea that is in the book. There's the curse of bigness, there's Zionism, there's free speech, um, there's, um, uh, um, uh, but, but here's at least one other important theme of, of your book, which is Brandeis's idea, his commitment to facts and, and Brandeis, but um, the issue of privacy and privacy law, government surveillance. Um, so I want you to say a little bit about Brandeis on privacy, maybe about Olmsted. And then I want us to focus on the tension between privacy ideas and free speech sunlight as a disinfectant idea, and maybe even bring it up to the current moment to what's happening this week, for example, with WikiLeaks. But before we get to WikiLeaks well, we'll and, and, set, and Larry set, Lessig. Set, set it up by telling about Larry Lessig, because that sort of <clears throat> sums up the whole. OK, so um, when he was my student, uh, uh, the TA for the class was the, the great Larry Lessig, who recently ran for president, actually. Um, and withdrew after a while. He's a, he's a great professor at Harvard. Can you imagine a small group class? It was totally phenomenal. Um, um, uh, and um, Larry Lessig. Um, uh, this is so beautiful. Uh, today. Um, was mentioned unfavorably in an email exchange between John Podesta and Neera Tandon. Um, who uh, are kind of democratic operatives, or, or they, who are advisors of various sorts to Hillary Clinton. And their private email conversation, this has nothing to do with the State Department or any government institution, but their private conversation was illegally hacked into, um, and, Julie, and, and WikiLeaks got these, these hacked emails, and put him out there for the world, and, and one of the things in, in the exchange mentioned Larry Lessig, okay? And, and um, here's the email exchange, and it, it, it's awkward. Um, read, the so, nice thing, read the nice part, not, uh, right. not, not the bad stuff. Well, what Larry I'll said. just... <clears throat> Podesta finds... So Lessig had criticized something, and Podesta said, oh, I don't like Larry Lessig, and Neurotanis says, oh, I agree with you. And she says, all these law professors, they're just pompous, okay? Uh, I think maybe that was Podesta. So that was, I, you, that you, was the truth. So, so there, was, there, was a slight, there was a slightly awkward, and mentions Larry Lessig. And now, and they weren't, wouldn't, they're polite people. They wouldn't have said that to Larry Lessig's face. They thought they were engaged in a private conversation. This is hacked into, posted you know, for the world. You read, can say, this is sunlight and disinfectant. Larry Lessig 
writes about this. And Larry Lessig cares about free speech, but he also cares about privacy. Here's what Larry Lessig said, and he was the TA when, when, when we first met. He says, I'm a big believer in leaks in the public interest. That's why I support Snowden and why I believe the president should pardon him. But I can't for the life of me see the public good in a leak like this, at least one that reveals no crime or violation of any important public policy. We all deserve privacy. The burdens of public service are insane enough without the perpetual threat that every thought shared with a friend becomes Twitter fodder. Nira, who would criticize Larry in this exchange, um, has only ever served in the public and public interest sector. Her work has always and only been devoted to advancing her vision of the public good. It's not right that she should bear the burden of this sort of breach. So instead of actually glomming on all the rest, he's saying, actually, we shouldn't even be peering in to this private conversation. And you wrote an earlier book about how technology makes it possible sometimes for all of us to peer in on the private, a book called The Unwanted Gaze. But there's a tension, isn't there, between Brandeis, who champions privacy, which you haven't told us about yet, and the Brandeis who champions sunlight and disinfect as, and, 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 and the First Amendment as a, as a sunshine and a disinfectant and, and get it all out there. There is a tension. And Brandeis rethought the proper balance between privacy and free speech in a way that led him to reconceive privacy in a very inspiring way. But I just have to say how moved I was to see our friend Larry's incredibly gracious mm -hmm. response to this leak. Mm -hmm. It's a model for all of us about mm -hmm. how to defend values of dignity and not to be moved by pettiness. Personal, by pettiness. And his broad commitment to privacy uh, as well as to uh, free speech in the public interest. Mm -hmm. And that was the balance that Brandeis Brandeis was, would have been proud of Larry. He, he would have been very proud of him. And I wrote in today and said how proud I was. What would Brandeis do? He would have but, written Larry's email. <laughs> well, or Larry's he, post. He, here's Brandeis's attention, and here's how he resolved it. It's a riveting story. It's a completely riveting story. So Brandeis writes in 1890 the most famous article on the right to privacy in American legal history. It's called The Right to Privacy, and you can read it in the Harvard Law Review. And he is concerned about a new technology, namely the Kodak camera and the instant press that's guaranteeing that what used to be whispered in the closets was now shouted from the rooftops. And basically, he and his aristocratic law partner, uh, Mr. Warren, are upset about a gossip item in one of the Boston tabloids describing Warren's uh, wife's friendship with Grover Cleveland's young wife, which they somehow perceived as an indignity. So they want to suppress this truthful but embarrassing speech. The paparazzi. The, the Boston paparazzi, which are genteel. Multiply the paparazzi by the billion pieces of Facebook that are exchanged, of content that are exchanged on Facebook every day, and you get a sense of how this problem has expanded. But Brandeis and Warren look in American law, and they can find no remedy for what they call offenses against honor or dignity. Roman law, European law, they note, allows you to offend, to uh, remove truthful but embarrassing speech. Uh, in Germany today, it's still illegal to give someone the finger on the highway. Imagine how that would fare on 77th Street. But uh, it doesn't exist in American law, which had traditionally protected liberty, not dignity. So Brandeis proposed a series of new causes of legal action. They're called the Brandeis torts. They sound like a delicious dessert. But in fact, they became a very unsatisfying area of law that Brandeis himself soon comes to regret. As soon as he writes the piece, he writes to his wife, Alice, and says, I reread it. I don't think it's as good as I thought it was. Because Brandeis comes immediately to perceive a tension between his effort to suppress 
truthful but embarrassing information about celebrities, and free speech and freedom of the press. He comes to believe that judges should not be in the business of deciding what sort of truthful but embarrassing speech is in the public interest and important for the public to be interested in. He thinks that's a decision that citizens have to make for themselves. So he thinks and he reflects and he writes his opinion in the Whitney case and he comes to reconceive privacy um, as a protection from prying government surveillance that can protect intellectual privacy or cognitive liberty rather than a right for aristocrats and celebrities to keep their names out of the gossip pages. This remarkable transformation occurs in a case called Olmsted v. U.S. And if you're up for two homework assignments, these opinions are not long. Read Brandeis's dissent in Olmsted. Olmsted is a case about wiretapping. It's 1928. The government's enforcing prohibition. They wire up the, um, uh, their phone wires underneath the sidewalk leading up to the office of the suspected bootlegger who's the uh, incredibly successful bootlegger of his day. He's huge, huge in his uh, success, <laughs> millions of dollars. And they wiretap his phones and they find out he is a bootlegger and they convict him. And he objects that there was no warrant for the wiretap. In a wooden majority opinion, uh, the Supreme Court per Chief Justice William Howard Taft says, there's no trespass, therefore there's no Fourth Amendment violation. It was a public sidewalk. They didn't break into his office. He has no expectation of privacy in the phone conversation. Brandeis dissents. He has in his desk drawer a clipping about a new technology, television, except it's 1927. But he misunderstands television. He thinks it's a two-way technology where people can see each other out both sides of the screen. Basically, he anticipates Skype and, and webcams. And his law clerk, Henry Friendly, again says, you can't just look out of a television camera and see someone on the other side. With FaceTime, of course, you can. So Brandeis removes the explicit reference to television, but he has this incredibly haunting impression passage. I'm not going to be able to do this as, you know, as neatly as the other one, but here's the gist of Brandeis's uh, descent in Olmsted. He says, discovery and invention is not likely to stop with the progress of wiretapping. Ways may someday be developed by which it's possible without physically intruding into the home to extract secret papers from desk drawers and introduce them in court. Advances in the psychic and related sciences are likely to allow the government to reveal unexpressed thoughts, sensations, and emotions. At the time of the framing of the Constitution, says Brandeis, a far smaller intrusion, the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution by allowing the king to break into people's houses and look for anonymous political pamphlets um, were deemed a violation of the Fourth Amendment. We need to translate the amendment so it protects the same amount of privacy in the age of the wires as it did at the time of the framing. This extraordinary passage, which anticipates cloud computing, where we do store our private papers in third-party servers in the digital cloud, and fMRI technology, which allows pe uh, people to read brain scans and to, 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 to detect lies, all insisted that it wasn't the physical trespass that the framers were objecting to. It was the exposure of our unexpressed thoughts, sensations, and emotions. And Brandeis came to believe that intellectual privacy, as the scholar Neil Richard has called it, or cognitive liberty, is necessary for political freedom. Because unless we can engage in anonymous speech in public, we cannot be fully human. So the great WWBD, about two questions, and then I'll um, uh, uh, stop. Um, there's a, right now, the battle over privacy and free speech is being waged in Europe over a sweeping new right that the European Union has recognized. It's called the right to be forgotten, or the, uh, mm -hmm. it comes from the French droit à l'oubli, or the right of oblivion. 
which is so French. It's sort of right out of Sartre, I want to be forgotten. But the Americans all want to be remembered. And this under this is new right is not a mm -hmm. joke because under the European court's ruling, anytime, if we were in Europe right now and someone was tweeting, uh, I can't see the audience too well, but if you're tweeting, Jeff is going on way too long in this answer. Please, let's get to audience questions. Which we after, will in two minutes. Will. So start to come up to come the mics. Up. But I could then, after the show, object <clears throat> that you had violated my dignity. And then Google would have to decide whether I'm a public figure and whether your tweet is in the public interest. And if they guess wrong and a privacy commissioner overturns uh, them, then they're liable for up to 2% of their annual income, which in Google's case last year was $60 billion. That threat tends to concentrate the mind. And as a result, <laughs> Google has removed 42% of the takedown requests it's received 500,000 Links uh, have been uh, removed, including an article about the right to be forgotten <laughs> itself. <laughs> so this perfectly encapsulates this tension between the European notion, which the old Brandeis had embraced, mm -hmm. about allowing uh, truthful but embarrassing speech that offends mm -hmm. dignity to be removed, and the second Brandeis, who thinks that only speech that threatens imminent violence can be removed, but at the same time gives us immunity from government surveillance, like drones flying in the air and tracking our movements 24-7 in public. So that's why he came to say that sunlight is the best disinfectant, uh, and he came to think that far from clashing with each other, privacy conceived as intellectual privacy and free speech could reinforce each other. So I'm glad to see that folks are at the microphones. Here's our request. Ask a question, one question. If we can keep it short, and if Jeff can keep his answer short, we can get through lots of questions and answers. Um, you first. Thank you for a wonderful lecture. Uh, my question is on a personal level uh, regarding Associate Justice James McReynolds. How did Brandeis work with that guy? And you could talk a little bit about McReynolds. Great question. James McReynolds is one of the nastiest human beings ever to sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes called him a natur mensch. He was an anti-Semite. He was such a racist, and he was so anti-Semitic that he, when Brandeis spoke in the conference room, he would leave the room. He would just get up and leave. And when the court went to Philadelphia, he refused to go. He said, I'm not to be found when a Hebrew is abroad. Uh, it's just, well, Jesus is not exactly the right word, but yes, it was, <laughs> he was very unpleasant. There's a great book, actually, The Revenge, Poetic Justice. McReynolds' law clerk, John Knox, wrote a memoir about his harrowing year clerking for this guy. And it's called The Forgotten Memoir of John Knox, and it, it describes McReynolds. But Brandeis just rose above it, as he did, just as Larry Lessig rose above mm -hmm. that exposure of his emails. When they go low. He went high. He never, <laughs> nice, I can't do that, but you can. Y you can't, but I can. <laughs> exactly. Wrong, <laughs> wrong, he, <laughs> bad, bad <clears throat> On a nonpartisan basis. He, uh, he, he um, never registered any distress. He, he eviscerated McReynolds' sloppy and conclusory arguments, and he lives in uh, glory, and McReynolds is now forgotten. Thank you. Uh, my friend Aaron Hall, a, a, a high school teacher from Greenwich, Connecticut. Nice to see you, Aaron. Good to see you. Who is a great friend of the New York Historical Society. I can't see everyone here because of the lights, but Aaron? Thank you so much. Um, today, the uh, regulatory body uh, most clearly associated in the public eye with Elizabeth Warren, um, was struck down by a circuit court uh, over a separation of power issue. Wow. So curious, I, you know, I'm throwing at you, it happened about three or four o'clock this <laughs> afternoon. So it, it, it's a separation of powers issue versus the, the imperial presidency versus Congress, the ability to fire um, agents of the executive. But given an improper and, and paraphrased framework, 
where would Brandeis sit on on that? My assumption is that he would be a little grumpy, but. You know, I'm not gonna, Akil taught me not to do constitutional analysis on the fly, but Brandeis insisted in the regulatory agencies he set up to blend public and private powers. He created the FTC and the Fed, and he insisted that they have both private and public representation. He didn't like uh, consolidated federal power and, and uh, 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 was, was uh, although uh, when it came to the president's power to fire, officials thought that some inefficiency was a good thing. Uh, I think you might have been torn. Akil will know better. Um, um, well, I haven't seen today's news, but about a, a few days ago, um, the DC Circuit, led by actually a former student, Brett Kavanaugh, did invalidate one portion of um, uh, a federal regulatory agency that said, in effect, the president can't fire at will, uh, Richard Cordray, the head of the Consumer uh, Financial um, uh, Board. Um, and Brandeis would have, um, he li liked the idea of a certain independence, um, and, but what uh, Brett Kavanaugh said um, is, if you're gonna have an independent board, it should be a commission, not one person. If one person is in charge of something, that person should basically be fireable at will. But Brandeis was involved in a great conversation about that in a case called, as Jeff mentioned, uh, Myers, um, and Brandeis was more open to limitations on the president's firing power than was Chief Justice Taft in the court. Thanks. So the founders and presumably Justice Brandeis we're focused on free speech uh, in terms of the individual. Today, we, we seem to see, I believe, that corporations are viewed as having a right of free speech and expression. And so what would J Justice Brandeis be dissenting uh, in that kind, in that, would he be dissenting in that context? So I asked Justice Ginsburg that very question, and she said, just, Justice Brandeis would not have been a fan of Citizens United, not at all. And she noted that Justice Stevens cited Brandeis's uh, uh, dissenting opinions in his own dissent in the Citizens United case. And according to Justice Ginsburg, Citizens United combined Brandeis's crusading opposition to corporate power with his devotion to judicial restraint. And Brandeis's sense of free speech was very Jeffersonian, the idea of speech as a natural right from God or nature and not government that inhered in individuals. On the other hand, you know, you can argue any of these things round or flat. If you believe that uh, money is speech and that corporations have it, then you would apply to restrictions on speech the same rigorous standards that Brandeis applied to natural human beings and would uh, be with the majority in Citizens United. But, but given the fact that he supported many of the state laws, including the Montana law, that the Supreme Court refused to revive after Citizens United, I think I agree with Justice Ginsburg. Um, and just so you hear the other side, I, um, uh, look, the New York Times is a corporation. And, uh, and they've said some things that Mr. Trump doesn't like. And if he becomes president, do you want him to have the power to shut him down? Because they're a corporation. Oh, and the Washington Post, oh, that's a corporation. Um, uh, so... Um, just so you hear, and, and I, I'm actually more, I, as great as Brandeis was, I'm more of a fan of, uh, personally, of the, the great Justice Hugo Black, um, but a very robust vision of, of the rights of speech and, and press. Um, so not everything that Brandeis even would do, even if he would do that, is necessarily the, the right one. So, and people can disagree about that. And so, so I think you're right that it's a, it's a complicated question. 
I would be interested in hearing about Brandeis's relationship to his other colleague on the court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and particularly in the area of political speech. How do they compare and contrast? They had a very close intellectual partnership. Uh, friendship may have been too strong because neither man, although uh, Brandeis was very tender to his wife and children and clerks, but um, rather austere and, and Holmes too. But uh, it's fascinating to compare Brandeis and Holmes' approach to free speech. They both changed their mind about speech over the summer of 1919, largely after reading Zechariah Chafee's article about free speech, uh, which Chafee, a Harvard law professor, pressed hard and lobbied both of them for. But I described to you Brandeis's Jeffersonian and Athenian conception of speech, his very idealistic notion of reason. Holmes had a completely different notion. His, I, his vision of speech can be found in the dissent in U.S. v. Schenck. If you want a third homework assignment, that one is worth reading too. And these are just a couple of paragraphs. They're just constitutional poetry. And there's a beautiful book by Thomas Healy called The Great Dissent about Holmes's Schenck dissent, and it's just spectacular intellectual history. Quickly, Holmes was a Nietzschean, a nihilist, an aristocrat who has contempt for what he calls the thick-fingered clowns we call the people. He says, if the people want to go to hell, I'll help them. It's my job. He has lost all faith in reason in the Civil War where he's almost uh, killed. And his vision of free speech, the, the libertarian metaphor of the marketplace of ideas, is rooted in Holmes's belief that unless strong ideas can crush weaker ones in the marketplace, then open violence will result. He's such a nihilist that he thinks basically majorities have to be able to crush majorities or else minorities. we'll have another minorities or else we'll have another civil war. So it's a it's a very important and also inspiringly speech protective vision, but Holmes has no faith that reason's gonna emerge from this bloody battle. He just thinks that the strong have to be able to crush the weak. Brandeis is much more idealistic about the possibilities for public reason. Thank you. I, uh, I just wanted to first say that was uh, excellent uh, tonight with, I'm oh, sorry, sorry. I thought that that was excellent tonight with your speech on Brandeis. Um, my question- And thank you for coming. No problem. Uh, my question is in regard to Brandeis's opinion on states' rights versus federal rights, and in terms of on uh, Erie Railroad versus Tompkins and how he would view that. And Jeff, before you ask that, um, can you tell us your name, please? Um, my name is Spencer. And how old are you? I'm 17 years old. Oh, well, thank that's you so why much I, for I want, I'm especially thanking you for coming. That's great. Every thank generation you so much for coming. Has, has to be part of this conversation. That's just beautiful. Thank you so much for coming, Spencer. <clears throat> Keel wrote the leading article on Erie, and I'm going to give this one to him. Um, uh, so, uh, just in a, in a nutshell, um, Erie Tompkins versus Rail, Railroad is. Uh, a testament, among other things, to Brandeis's sense of legal principle. In general, he was for the small guy. But in this particular case, he sides with the corporation, interesting enough. Why does he side with the corporation in this case? Because he's going to come up with a neutral rule. And a neutral rule is, on certain things, actually, um, uh, federal courts are going to have to follow what states do. And because state judges are more democratic, he thinks in general, um, making federal courts follow what states would do is in general going to perhaps help the little guy. It's going to be more democratic. But on the facts of this case, it's the little guy who's going to lose. But he is going to put forth a principled, neutral, 
legal principle that in general will help little guys against corporations, but in the case at hand, he actually sides with the corporation. Just as I, for example, just put all my cards on the table, I side, I side with corporations uh, that want to engage in free speech, whether they're called the New York Times or the Washington Post, or by the way, Saturday Night Live, which he also wants to shut down, he being um, m m Mr. Trump, because he didn't like the Alec Baldwin portrayal. And, and we get our information from corporations. That's part of our free speech tradition. And so it's complicated. What would Brandeis do? Ruth Because we all admire Brandeis. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinks Citizens United is wrongly decided, and she admires Brandeis. So she said, Brandeis would be on my side. I admire Brandeis too, and I can invoke Erie saying, no, Brandeis would be on my side. Sometimes corporations should win if that's in the spirit of larger democratic principles. So that's how I would use Brandeis himself um, because I, I admire him too, although not quite as much as I admire Hugo Black, but that's, that's for another night. Thank you. I believe Brandeis once said that we could either have wealth concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people, plutocracy or an oligarchy, or we could have a democracy, but we cannot have both. Have recent Supreme Court decisions, like Money is Speech, like Citizens United, like the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, sections of it, have this undermined and subverted American democracy and kind of contributed to a slide toward plutocracy or oligarchy in our country? I think it's very important to note, as you do, that for Brandeis, the anti-oligarchy principle was a constitutional principle. He attributed it to Jefferson. He ascribed it to the framers. There's no doubt that at the time of the Civil War, in addition to trying to strike down racial caste legislation, there was a huge suspicion of monopoly power. And it's so striking that during the Progressive Era, Republicans and Democrats are united around the danger of oligarchy and thought that uh, it violated the Constitution. What happened to the anti-oligarchy principle? Why we heard on the campaign trail, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders denouncing the banks, but we don't see Supreme Court justices uh, denouncing oligarchy on constitutional grounds. Uh, there's a good uh, account by some scholars who say that in the 1960s, progressives, liberals, became less interested in fighting oligarchy and defending uh, and, and, and corporate bigness, and more interested in defending uh, the, the rights of uh, minorities and women and underrepresented groups. And that achievement of the civil rights movement was hugely important, but it left behind that old populist tradition often championed by Southern guys, white guys like Jefferson, Hugo Black, Brandeis, who didn't fit into this new narrative. So for all these reasons and without, uh, you know, well, I told you what I thought of Citizens United, which I think was wrongly uh, decided. So I think descriptively, you are correct that the Supreme Court is no longer, there's, there's no one on the current Supreme Court who's a passionate opponent of economic oligarchy in the way that Brandeis was. With apologies, we're coming to the end, and I think we may only have time for two, uh, for, well, I'm going to do two questions and one answer. So one on this side and one on that side. Um, and uh, um, uh, would you tell us your name and how old you are, please? I'm Sam. I'm 18 years old. Well, then you're too old. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. no, no. Um, and and you're going to vote this uh, November, please. Uh, maybe. It's oh, Brandeis. Brandeis, I think would be Brandeis. I think would be disappointed because he actually thinks it's not just a right but a duty. But but to vote, I don't know. What to participate? To participate, absolutely. If you decide not to vote, do so for reason. 
grounds and give us your reasons. But. Uh, okay, please, Sam. And then one question. One question. We'll hear both questions, and then uh, Jeff will give his final um, summation. Actually, what inspired Brandeis to go into law? What inspired Brandeis to? To go into law. Wonderful question. Okay, and? Okay, um, I'm Bob, I'm 74. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and are you gonna vote in November? Absolutely. And Sam, if you, generation, doesn't vote, and these guys do, don't complain about climate change and all the rest. Okay. <laughs> um, how do you make consonant Brandeis's vote in Buck versus Bell on mm -hmm. sterilization with his fear of bigness and his advocation of freedoms? Great, two great questions. So let's start with the tough one. Buck versus Bell, the court eight to one upholds laws mandating the sterilization of so-called imbeciles, the eugenics laws embraced by most states <coughs> and by most progressives at the time Catholic, Protestant, and uh, Jewish liberal denominations are crazy for eugenics. It's like the, you know, kind of Google fad of its time. It's only conservative denominations that oppose it. The only dissenter in Buck v. Bell, Pierce Butler, a devout Catholic, who's opposing it on religious grounds. Oliver Wendell Holmes writes the infamous majority decisions, it's better for all the world if instead of propagating their creed, these imbeciles have their fallopians tubes cut, Holmes says, three generations of imbeciles is enough. And then to make matters worse, Adam Cohn has a great new book on this, Imbeciles, which you should read. He goes back and he says, I've just upheld the law mandating the sterilization of imbeciles. Nothing I've done all week has given me so much pleasure. Holmes was an enthusiastic eugenicist. Brandeis was not. Brandeis was a devotee generally of judicial deference to state laws. He believed that the states were laboratories of <coughs> democracy, and unless there was a clear textual provision of the Constitution that forbade the act in question, he believed in judicial restraint. So although he, unlike Holmes, was not himself in favor of eugenics, he thought for restraint grounds, along with almost everyone else on the court, except for Pierce Butler, the devout Catholic, uh, he silently joined the decision. So although it, didn't, it wasn't one of his greatest moments, um, he had a principle, and in that he was joined by most other members of the court. Why did he go into law? Um, he was inspired by his own intellectual transformation in Dresden. He'd gone to high school and then his family went to Dresden. He goes to the gymnasium. He doesn't like German regulations because he's criticized for whistling when he comes home and doesn't, wants to get the key out of his dorm. He says, in America, you can whistle. He really feels like a libertarian. But he said in Dresden, he learns German. He talks his way in throughout the, uh, the entrance exams. He said he learned the importance of changing your mind after mediating on facts. And he read John Locke and this idea that all of our opinions are the response of our reason, which is receiving external stimulation, is one that he embraced. And throughout his life, he came to change his mind on important issues from privacy and free speech, from women's suffrage, which he had initially opposed but came to enthusiastically support because of the remarkable women he worked with in writing the Brandeis Brief, and also about the proper balance between corporations and unions. This guy made a million dollars in 1913 money, many multiples now, by representing businesses, but it was only after reflecting on the need to balance corporate power with union power that he changed his mind and became the people's lawyer. He said, some men love yachts and uh, luxuries and motor cars. My luxury is to donate my time free to the public 
on behalf of the public interest. So it was a beautiful vision for law. He inspires us as lawyers. He inspires us as citizens. Go watch the debate. Learn about the Constitution. And let's unite around this beautiful document uh, in these polarized times that unites us, which is the Constitution of the United States. Thank you so much. So thank you again all for joining us. Jeffrey Rosen, Akil Ritamar, thank you so much. They will be signing books uh, right out uh, 77th Street side. And Akil Ritamar will be coming back on November 16th for the Burger Court with Linda Greenhouse and Michael Gretz. So look into that program if you haven't already signed up. Thank you again. Have a great night and enjoy. Thank you. <laughs>